What explains the diploma divide? This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Voters with college degrees are increasingly supporting Democrats, with Republicans now doing better among those without college, a big reversal in recent decades. The pattern is even starker in geographic terms, with more educated areas growing very Democratic. What explains this flip in voter partisanship and voting? This week, I talked to Joshua Zinger of Old Dominion about his political research quarterly article, Diploma Divide. He finds that college-educated Americans are more liberal on social issues, and that more educated Americans are moving furthest toward Democrats when surrounded by other educated people. White voters are flipping fastest by education, but the trends are present across the electorate. I also talked to Will Marble of the University of Pennsylvania about his new working paper, What Explains Educational Polarization Among White Voters? He finds that white college graduates are now more liberal across economic, social, racial, and foreign policy issues. Meanwhile, less educated white voters have increased the importance they place on non-economic issues, reaching parity with more educated voters. Dave Hopkins and I are finishing a book on the education divide, and we think it's among the most important developments in contemporary politics, so it's critical to understand when, where, and how it developed. I think you'll enjoy the latest research on this trend, starting with Zinger. So tell us about your uh, new paper on the Diploma Divide. What did you find? What I found in this paper about the Diploma Divide is that our level of educational attainment says a lot more about how we vote uh, than it did in the past. And to be specific about that, uh, people with college degrees or grad and, and or graduate degrees have become much more democratic uh, over the last couple of decades, but in particularly the last uh, six to eight years. Um, and people without a, a college degree have become somewhat more Republican, although the change is less pronounced. And we see evidence of this both at the individual level. If we look at uh, how individual level uh, voters behave, we also see evidence of this at the aggregate level. So if you look at counties uh, and or states, you see a lot uh, the aggregate level of educational attainment in these places uh, strongly predicts voting patterns uh, in whatever geographic uh, unit that you look at. So uh, people are well aware of like racial divides in voting behavior. Um, but I think many ways in, in the coming decades, uh, we'll have a second, if not even more important divide in the electorate, and that's over educational attainment. You also look at some issue area differences uh, between, based on education, um, and you find uh, some, some differences kind of across the board, but they do seem to be some relatively large uh, differences on uh, what we consider social issues or cultural issues. Do you see that as the driving trend? There's certainly a big gap in the culture war issues between people with college degrees and not. Uh, so we think talk about things like abortion, or we talk about things like uh, immigration. Uh, gay marriage is less of a hot button issue, but we still see a divide uh, when it comes to gay rights um, along educational lines. Um, we do see some polarization uh, between college graduates and non-graduates on uh, economic issues, and uh, there's some evidence that college graduates have moved left on ec- on economic issues over the, uh, the past decade. Um, you also see divides between uh, uh, along educational lines on a lot of racial issues too. Uh, so if you think of like uh, 
uh, debates we've seen over Black Lives Matter, over police violence uh, towards minorities, all these types of things. Uh, what we think about the policy responses to these social problems is strongly conditioned by our education too. Um, so it's uh, the divide between uh, degree havers and non uh, is present across a whole bunch of different policy domains. So you mentioned you also find this at the geographic level. So one way of interpreting that is that we just have a lot of degree holders in an area, and so we're just aggregating this individual level effect. Um, but I noticed that there remains, even before any kind of interaction, there remains just an effect of living in a more college-educated area. So how, how do you kind of interpret that? Is this partly a, kind of a cultural context effect of living in like a college town versus a, a rural area? Um, is education having an effect at kind of the, the aggregate level as well as the individual level, or are there just two ways of looking at the same? Yeah, I'd say my the evidence in my paper is certainly more suggestive than conclusive of like any particular mechanism uh, here. But I definitely, I strongly suspect that there's a, con- a pretty strong contextual effect of, educa- of uh, educational attainment based on the composition of where somebody lives. Um, Jonathan Rodden in his book, Why Cities Lose, makes this point um, that college graduates were once pretty evenly distributed across the country. And now we've seen that pattern change uh, and change a lot where college graduates have clustered in a lot of the big metropolitan areas. Uh, And so we see a big educational split between uh, urban and rural areas in a way that we didn't before. Um, and I suspect this is uh, when you get a lot of people living together uh, with similar educational backgrounds, I think it reinforces uh, whatever those uh, particular set of cultural values that those groups hold. Um, and so I suspect there is a strong uh, contextual effect here based on where you live. People that live in highly educated areas adopt a different set of cultural values, uh, regardless of educational levels than people uh, that live in less educated or like more rural areas. So I think there's there's pretty strong evidence uh, for contextual effect. Uh, you probably can see this in the aggregate level voting uh, data too. Um, but yeah, people with college degrees that live in heavily educated areas are systematically more uh, democratic and more liberal than people without a college degree, people with a college degree that live in other types of places. So how should we interpret that uh, interaction? Is it is there something kind of amplifying uh, the actual effect of, of education, or is it partly due to educated people who've chosen to live in educated areas? Um, you know, how, how do you see that, that cross-level? Yeah, that's a good question, and I'm not sure I have a, a conclusive answer for that. My strong suspicion is it's... Um, we can think of like a cultural aggregation effect where you get multiple people living in the uh, similar types of people uh, living in a similar type of area where people start to take on more uniform attitudes to match the other people around them, which is like self become self-reinforcing. Um, and we've seen like big increase in geographic polarization uh, too, on top of everything where I, uh, different types of places in the United States, like all over rural areas looking increasingly like each other when it comes to voting and urban areas look increasingly like each other when it comes to voting. And people, people think about divide along red state and blue state lines, but you know, uh, look at Louisville. If you want to think like a red state, look at Louisville, Kentucky, 
not Kentucky, not a place we typically think of as like a bastion of liberalism. Louisville is extremely liberal. Uh, or if you can think about like some places uh, in upstate New York, New York's a, a blue state, but rural upstate New York is quite Republican. Uh, and so you see these splits between urban and rural areas and more educated and less educated areas, regardless of the types of states that these places are in. Uh, large metropolitan areas look pretty similar uh, in a lot of ways, regardless of the state they find themselves uh, in. Uh, Louisville, Kentucky looks a lot more uh, like Chicago in terms of like the voting patterns than it does the rest of Kentucky. And you can say the same thing about like downstate Illinois looks a lot more like rural Kentucky than it does Chicago. Um, and I think these kind of contextual effects like matter a lot. Me- measuring those in like a conclusive way, I think, is, is tough. So you also uh, explore several potential causal pathways between um, uh, education uh, and voting, um, including party identification. First, to just show that uh, it is uh, it does seem to be changing. Uh, patterns in both party identification and voting, um, but do, you also do a little bit to, to show that it, it might be having an effect through party identification as well as as voting. Um, in the the long term patterns, it it sometimes looks like the the voting changes first. You know, you have the the Trump voters and the anti Trump voters changing, and then by the time of the next election, they've kind of gone all the way over to to that side. H- how do you see? Uh, kind of that that relationship, and do we know anything about you know wh- whether education is is operating through changing people's partisanship, or maybe whether even there's a, a reverse effect where it changes voting first? Yeah, this is uh, I think an important question. Um, in uh, we've gone uh, almost ten minutes, and this is the first time Trump's name has come up uh, in this whole discussion, um, and I think like. All of, all of the patterns that we see with education and shifting uh, voting patterns along educational lines, mo- that foundation was in place before Trump came along, but Trump kicked it into overdrive. Um, and you see like a lot of places, like I'm in Virginia, and at one point in time, not that long ago, the Northern, uh, Virgin- Northern Virginia, the D.C. suburbs, anchored the Republican Party in the state. Um, and many of like the states like Western and rural areas were, uh, very, very democratic leaning. Those, um, patterns have flipped on their heads. Uh, we're now, uh, Heinrich County in, uh, suburban Richmond and then things, places like Loudoun County, Alexandria, uh, and then the Northern Virginia suburbs heavily, highly educated, um, they, the voting patterns uh, flipped before the registration by and large, um, which suggests people might have made some different choices at the ballot box and then later on updated uh, their party identification. Um, that might work somewhat differently than we, we typically think about causal models of voting behavior and political science, going back to the American voter where you think, you know, Social attachments come first, partisanship follows, and then ultimately, like voting decisions follow from there. I think like the reality is probably messier um, than that, and certainly the evidence I uncovered like uh, showed some reciprocal effects. Like, education shapes partisanship. We see an effect, a direct effect of education on voting behavior, but you also see an indirect effect because it shifts partisanship too. Um, 
And so the, both the longstanding decision and the election-specific decision, uh, you see some evidence of change there. Um, but saying the chicken or the egg question uh, with partisanship and voting behavior, um, I think you can you can tell a story that uh, from each perspective. Um, I th- I think at least my my personal take on the evidence is that uh, we've seen voting decisions change before partisanship. Uh, but now the places that uh, many of the places that defected from the Republicans uh, towards Trump uh, away from Trump in 2016 are now just pretty solidly Democratic. Uh, if you think about the example, um, the district in uh, the Atlanta suburbs in Cobb County that uh, John Ossoff uh, ran for in the special election uh, in 2017 and narrow, narrowly lost um, that district flipped in 2018 and is now just was not uh, particularly strongly contested in the next couple of elections uh, and is pretty much just a safe Democratic uh, district now. Um, and, you know, think Cobb County, that was like once upon a time, that was uh, Newt Gingrich's base of power. So you think about how much that place has changed. And we see a lot of places around the country that look like Cobb County. You conduct uh, your analyses among all voters and then uh, just among white voters. And we know that uh, the attention in the media has been on these uh, changes among uh, white voters. And you do find some stronger relationships among white voters. But uh, it does seem like there's at least some evidence that educational polarization uh, may be beginning or at least that there's been a flip away from higher educated uh, voters leaning Republican also among non-white populations. So to what extent um, might we be in the middle of uh, that, those relationships also appearing among non-white voters? And I guess why and why not would we expect those patterns to be different among non-white voters versus white voters? Oh, I mean, if you look at public opinion and like, if you look at the actual issues and the divide between, the divide on educational lines extends to all groups. I... Where it gets messier or where it gets less clear is actual like partisanship and voting behavior. Um, you definitely, we definitely see evidence of a diploma divide between uh, among African or among Latinos and Asian Americans, um, where more edu- more highly educated Latinos and Asian Americans are more democratic than less. Um, African American partisanship and voting behavior is much more uniform than either of those two uh, aforementioned groups. So it's harder to make a case for a diploma divide there, like at least in terms of voting behavior, simply because there's a lot less variation. African-American public opinion, on the other hand, is way more complex than the voting behavior suggests. And you can certainly see evidence of a, of a diploma divide in opinion. It just hasn't manifested at the, diploma, at the ballot box in the same way. Um, but I think you like, is, the, is this, uh, when you think about like the, the growth in Asian American and Latino populations over time and political diversity within these groups? Yeah, I think this is going to be a big source of political diversity uh, among Latinos, among Asian Americans and any other, and probably any other group you can think of. But it does seem like there's, um, you know, this is important for sort of how I- interpreting the divide. There's at least one story that says that this is uh, mainly about racial issues among um, uh, lower educated white voters. 
we might not expect uh, the same relationships among racial attitudes uh, for minority voters, but maybe we maybe we should. Um, you know, to to what extent should we expect that those you know that the same things that are driving this divide uh, among white voters should also matter? Uh, for non-white voters. Yeah, I mean, so I think abortion is a great great example of why we should expect this to matter um, across the board and not just for whites. If you look at, like, public opinion about abortion, it's not particularly racially polarized. Um, there are some differences between ethnic and racial groups, but the differences aren't particularly pronounced. Now, if you look at abortion attitudes across educational groups, all of a sudden we see pretty stark evidence of polarization where support for uh, legal abortion goes up as a function of education and consistently up. So if you look at uh, high school versus some college versus bachelor's versus postgraduate degree, increase, uh, abortion, uh, support for abor- legal abortion increases at every step along the way there. Um, and so that, I think, is evidence, I think, Plenty of people think abortion is uh, an important ish- political issue other than white people. Um, and if that's the pattern that we see across groups along educational lines, I think that's pretty solid evidence that we should expect uh, the, di- the diploma divide to extend to other groups besides whites. So we do have uh, some new kinds of evidence uh, on the effect of higher education that uh, try to take advantage of uh, causal inference uh, strategies or do before and after uh, higher education and actually look for change um, attributable to uh, higher education in kind of short order. But on the other hand, um, you know, we have like after 2016, people who are 40, 50 years out of college uh, changing their views um, as a function of their college, something about their college education. Um, but you know, may, maybe not uh, the college experience directly itself. So, so what do you what do you think about um, that? Should we expect there to have been there to be kind of an effect that is apparent from the beginning to end of college, or is this about the networks, the communities, the professions, the class that we uh, end up in? Yeah, I think like I'm much strongly lean to that second perspective. Like, I don't think there is much about like the actual educational process. I would shift views to dramatically to the left. Um, I strongly suspect this is much more closely related to like the types of networks you have, whether or not you stay in your hometown or not. I think one of the, one of the like the under uh, underappreciated effects of college, and at least like in the majority of cases, it forces people to move out of their hometown and be around with a bunch of other people that they ordinarily would not be. Um, and this experience, I think, is probably uh, where that profound difference comes. And maybe you could even think about this deeper level where you have some traits like openness to experience. People that are willing to leave and go to this new place might look systematically different than those who choose to stay behind. Um, and so whether it's education, like is there some book that people are reading in the classroom or a set of books or, you know, a set of views that are exposed to, I think the evidence is much more powerful that like, this is about a network effect. This is about leaving home. Um, this is about living with a different, living around different groups of people than you would ordinarily be exposed to. Um, so, uh, and certainly we do see differences in political attitudes, you know, across like college majors that, that there's also self-selection that goes on with that, which makes the inference problem, uh, 
that much harder. Um, yeah, English majors are more liberal than engineers, but people choose which major they, they go into. They're not uh, randomly assigned, fortunately. Um, so you start thinking about uh, that that set of issues. Um, I'm, I'm much more strongly come down in that second camp. So another way of looking at it is kind of counterfactuals. Do the parties have anything that they can do? Um, on, on the one hand, you mentioned that there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of complaints about Hillary Clinton's campaign that uh, Joe Biden's campaign uh, tried to, to rectify, and yet where he gained <laughs> was the same kinds of places that Hillary Clinton uh, had had gained. Um, you know, on the other, you know, the fact that this is in part about party positions and movements suggests that there, there might be things that uh, the, the parties could do, uh, either moderate their opinions or change their relative emphasis. Uh, how, how do you see it? Yeah, I mean, one of the fascinating things about the 2020 election was just, you know, I think that the thought behind nominating Joe Biden to oppose Trump was like, you know, this is someone who grew up in like working, mainly like working class areas and, you know, uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, and then in Delaware, and had strong connections dating back decades with organized labor. Uh, and this was like the, the guy that was going to like be able to speak like a common language with the white working class, people without college degrees, uh, a place where the Democratic Party has really struggled over the last couple decades, um, and this this was going to be the path to victory. Well, it turns out the path to victory was through places like Oakland County, Michigan, and you know, I think uh, Dane County, Wisconsin, or Madison is, and like these places that are. Uh, not like what you think of traditionally working class at all, but like very affluent, very highly educated uh, suburban areas. And that begins to think like, uh, and I think a lot of things that Joe Biden has done um, as president, like even if the perceptions don't take, I mean, looking at like uh, the the infrastructure act and like the chips bill and like um, these types of things were very like, um, it's a very New Deal Democrat, I think, approach in some ways where you focus on like these big public works projects and building up domestic in- industry. Um, he's not perceived that way at all by anybody. Um, and I, uh, I'm not sure why, why that's necessarily the case. Maybe like these party brands are hard to shake. Um, one of one of the things I think that makes Biden kind of unique is yes, he is very old, but he he's like remembers a time when the Democratic Party stood for some very different things than it does now. We had uh, an sort of an explosion of popular commentary and um, to some extent scholarship uh, really designed um, to explain the 2016 election. Uh, and uh, we may, may now be entering our third election in a row, uh, a presidential election in, in a row with uh, Trump on the ballot. Um, how should we assess the the state of that that research? Were we too focused on changes in in one election that turn out to have been uh, a, a longer set of of patterns? Um, has political science successfully kind of influenced the the popular uh, knowledge about about this, or did we learn uh, something from the popular commentators that that we weren't paying enough attention to? So this is what I think people get wrong about Trump. Um, and this is where I think a lot of the popular commentary gets wrong about Trump. You know, Trump is viewed as like this sort of oracle 
the sort of like working class white whisperer uh, with this idea of he has a spell, like the special connection amongst working class whites that um, simply other candidates don't. And I think that might be true to an extent. Um, but I think what's important to keep in mind is Trump did not noticeably improve the share amongst whites of the vote amongst whites without college degree relative to Romney in 2012. Uh, where the movement came from was uh, whites with college degree leaving the Republican Party. And I think like so much of the Trump uh, commentary focused on the fact that, yes, he won the Electoral College in 2016. But don't uh, forget to include a giant caveat that he won with 46% of the vote, uh, which is, uh, you think, lower than uh, Mitt Romney's performance in 2012. It's lower than John Kerry's performance in 2014. It's lower than Al Gore in 2000. Um, it, was a, it was a showing, you think about like, Trump having some sort of unique kind of political power, I think is often the view. But I mean, in many ways, like Trump and Trumpism is historically unpopular. Uh, and you think about an incumbent president getting not even cracking 46% of, or not 47% of the vote again in a reelection campaign. That's like, uh, historically speaking, that's a really bad performance. And then when you couple with that with what happened in 2018 and 2022, uh, I think you have some pretty powerful evidence that this was not, there wasn't any special magic there. It was an appeal to a narrow but intense slice of the electorate, and that appeal has remained consistent. But barring uh, some funny stuff in the Electoral College, it's not enough to put together a nationwide uh, majority coalition. Um, and so that's one of the things I think that the coverage has gotten wrong about Trump. Um, this wasn't a movement that got 53% of the vote nationwide and, you know, won easily. This was, I think, uh, in context, an electoral college fluke in 2016, uh, and then uh, an incumbent president losing the popular vote by 7 million ballots in 2020. Um, uh, I think in most cases, this is a pretty disastrous electoral record for a political movement. Uh, my, my personal comparison of Trump is this, this is William Jennings Bryan who happened to win one. Um, you know, we think about like William Jennings Bryan being this democratic, uh, populist, agrarian populist, you know, the, the cross of gold and bimetallism and all these issues. Uh, he never won anything, uh, for the most part. Um, at least on, on the presidential level, um, you know, we could have you could have a similar story with Trump, with the big exception that one time forty six percent of the vote was enough. So, what do you think uh, we still don't understand about uh, this rising education divide? Um, and what are we? What should we be looking for in twenty twenty four? So, what do we don't understand about the diploma divide? Here is what people ignore about the diploma divide: way more people have a college degree now than they did twenty years ago, and so you start thinking about why is this. Uh, shift so important? Well, almost 40% of adults have a college degree now. This is like, this used to be a very niche constituency, 10 to 15% of the adult population. Now it's 40% and still climbing. Uh, so we talk about college graduates, uh, how they behave. Uh, and when you consider college graduates turn out at, to vote at a rate that is much higher than the national average, even a bigger percentage of the electorate. Um, and so you think about like previewing 2024, 
I haven't studied this um, in any type of rigorous fashion, but you think one consistent trend over the last couple of years is Democrats have really overperformed in special elections. And I think a big part of this is who is the type of people that show up in special elections? Well, it's the people who show up in any election from dog catcher to city council to, you know, midterms to presidential elections. And this is like skews much higher levels of education uh, than the people that vote in like maybe a presidential election, or maybe they show up to a midterm. Um, You want to think about a coalition of people that show up to vote frequently. This is college graduates. And if college graduates are predominantly siding with one party over the other, I, you know, for many years, I think this was the Republican Party's strength. They had, you know, strength among college graduates and they turned them out every single election. And if those voters go a different way, I think that's a, a huge part of the story. That's a big portion of the population and a disproportionately large part of the electorate. Um, how that pretends to 2024 you start thinking about what's what's the big drawback about college graduates? Well, they live in geographically clustered areas. Uh, having winning additional college votes in Boston or San Jose or uh, some of these places doesn't help you a bit in the electoral college. I at least I saw uh, some from some data from L two the uh, the voter registration uh, tracking company. They're saying you know non college whites they might be less. Uh, 44% of the population and shrinking. There's still a majority in 23 states, including places like uh, you know, Pennsylvania and you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, th- these places you know, th- where the Rust Belt uh, states that are going to most likely swing the 2024 election one way or the other. Um, so uh, college graduates, they're, they're a large and growing segment of the population that's increasingly democratic. They're also not particularly strategically distributed across states, across congressional districts, this kind of, uh, of stuff, which blunts the impact. Zinger has tracked the key trends, but Will Marble sought to explain them with a model of issue voting that incorporates how much voters care about each issue area and their positions. He came away feeling there are different factors driving each side of the education divide. So what are the main findings and takeaways from your new paper on education polarization? I start by documenting what's now become a familiar pattern of polarization by education levels among white voters over the past several decades, where we see that for uh, from the 1980s through around 2000, there were relatively small differences in voting patterns in presidential elections across educational lines, with college-educated voters voting slightly more for Republicans. But then around 2000, you start seeing this divergence whereby college-educated voters start trending towards Democrats and non-college voters start trending towards Republicans. And by 2008, it's really clear in the time series that we're uh, witnessing a realignment. And it's really only grown since then to the point where education is now one of the best predictors of vote choice. So I ask whether there are particular issues that underlie this realignment. And so what I do in this paper is I compile dozens of policy questions from the ANES and the CCES to generate estimates of policy preferences uh, that are comparable over time across several different issue areas. And then I develop a framework to interpret the correlations between individuals' attitudes on these issues and their vote choice. And I come up with three primary findings. First, I find that 
attitudes are increasingly correlated across issues for both groups. But this is especially important for non-college educated voters, where there was relatively little ideological constraint up until relatively recently. And now you see a, a very high correlation across issue areas so that there's consistent polarization uh, between college and non-college voters across these different issue areas. Second, I find that the working class, um, those white voters without college degrees, sometimes I'll use working class as shorthand here, uh, have long been more conservative on cultural issues. But we now also see that they're more conservative on economic issues than college-educated voters as well. So we've seen that there's an increasing liberalism on economic policy among voters, white voters with a college degree. Finally, I find that the relative weight placed on cultural issues has increased for non-college voters. So for much of this time series, there was not a whole lot of correlation between vote choice and issue attitudes on cultural issues among non-college educated voters, which I interpret as the issue weight placed on, uh, on that, those issues. But recently we see a convergence in issue weights so that we see that both college and non-college educated voters are basing their votes on cultural as well as economic issues. So in some sense, these conservative cultural attitudes have become more important for the vote choice of non-college educated voters. So this is, these are the main findings that I present in the paper, and this provides a lens to interpret this growing educational polarization. So you say there's uh, been a, a flip in the relationship between education and voting and then an increase in, in polarization. I know that uh, we often look at this in terms of specific uh, elections, um, although you've looked at it over a longer time period. So to what extent is there uh, a sense in just the basic uh, relationship and time series that there was some kind of critical election and we do need to explain 2016 or 2000? Uh, or uh, is this just kind of a long, slow pattern that uh, doesn't have as much to do with uh, what the parties are doing in any given election? So I would say that this is a trend that we see going back now about two decades, this realignment, and it's been accelerated to certainly uh, in recent elections, in the Trump elections especially. But I think to really understand this pattern, we need to go back in time and understand it as a broader realignment that spans elections. So I think that it's not to say that what the parties are doing don't matter or that what individual candidates in elections do don't matter. But I think that there are bigger trends that we need to understand to really under, uh, to really uh, to really put into proper perspective the realignment that we're seeing. So I tend to think that election specific factors certainly are important. And uh, but these long-term trends uh, indicate that it's not just a one-off critical election that's explaining these, these patterns. So you look at these uh, four different issue areas. Um, so why don't we go through each one of them and tell us um, what, what's in it and uh, what uh, direction is uh, the relationship between education and opinion going and, and what's the trend, if any, in the importance of, of those issues? Sure. So these four issue areas that I group different policy questions into are based in part on previous research um, that groups issues into economic issues and moral or social values issues. And I add to that uh, issues of race, racial policy, racial resentment, things like that. 
And then final, the final category is foreign policy, which includes uh, a hodgepodge of issues related to the United States place in the world, as well as some particular uh, issues that sort of cut between foreign and domestic policy, such as trade policy and immigration. So these are four broad issue areas that I think reflect a lot of the debate in contemporary politics. And so let's go through each one of them and think through what are the differences between uh, college and non-college voters on each of them, both in terms of the attitudes they hold and the weight attached to each issue. So first on economic issues, what we see is that for a long time span, college-educated voters are more conservative on economic policy issues. And these issues, the questions that go into this are primarily related to redistribution and uh, and spending by the government. What we see is that starting uh, about 15 years ago, we start to see a convergence in the attitudes on economic policy so that we see college-educated voters no longer being more conservative on these issues. And in recent elections, they are actually more liberal on these issues than, than working-class voters. So we see this, uh, this kind of big shift in the orientation of the working class versus college-educated voters on economic issues. And then on these other issues, so moral, social values, race, and foreign policy, we see that college-educated voters have long been more liberal on these issues. And this doesn't change a whole bunch over the uh, time span that I study, which is 1984 to 2020. What we do see is that there seems to be an increasing importance placed on these issues for vote choice among non-college-educated voters. So going back to the 80s and 90s, you see very little correlation between, say, non-college-educated voters' attitudes on uh, cultural issues and their vote choice. In recent years, you see that the correlation between vote choice and issue attitudes on these issues is nearly identical between college and non-college voters. So I develop a framework to think about how we should interpret these correlations uh, and issue voting framework. And I, I show that when we look at the ratio of the coefficients, we can interpret this under this, uh, under this framework as the relative issue weight placed on these, uh, on these issues. So what we find is that there's a convergence in issue weights such that non-college and college-educated voters are placing about the same amount of weight on both economic and cultural issues, which is really a big departure from past decades where cultural issues really only seem to matter very much for highly educated voters and seem to matter a lot less for non-college voters who base their vote to a much greater extent on economic issues. And then real quick on just foreign policy uh, and uh, racial issues, did those match the trends in cultural issues uh, or did they have unique dynamics? Sure. I'm using cultural issues kind of a shorthand for both uh, racial issues and, and these moral values issues. You do see a convergence in issue weights uh, in uh, race and civil rights issues, as well as in foreign policy. Foreign policy has a lot of uh, variation across uh, across elections, especially going back to the 90s, but it really has stabilized in the last uh, the last four elections or so, to the point where both college and non-college voters place the same amount of weight on this. 
I think to some extent, this is due to the the choice of including immigration as a foreign policy issue here, which has a whole set of unique dynamics. And my approach here was to try to think procedurally about what policy domain different issues would fall into. But of course, there's valence issues or valence that is attached to immigration that is not quite the same as debates about uh, NAFTA or debates about um, other trade agreements or the UN, things like that, that you would typically classify as foreign policy. So it seems like uh, the popular debate uh, about this is relatively consistent uh, with your findings on the weight that uh, folks are placing on these uh, dimensions, um, but maybe less consistent with your findings about uh, changes in attitudes. Is that, that how you see it? I think that's basically right. So there was this debate in the aughts about what's the matter with Kansas and this idea that uh, low-income voters were voting against their interests based on cultural values, opposition to gay rights, and so on. And I think that debate between Thomas Frank, Larry Bartels, and others kind of concluded that cultural issues didn't seem to matter very much for low-income voters or non-college voters. It was really the highly educated who placed a lot of weight on those issues. And I think that debate happened a little bit prematurely in the sense that it happened sort of right at the beginning of this realignment along educational lines. And if you extend the time series forward from 2008 to 2020, you really do see that these cultural issues, LGBT rights, abortion, things like that, matter to a great extent for for the working class as well as uh, college-educated voters. So I think in that sense, they're uh, the popular narrative is is right. And you see a similar thing on racial issues, especially in the Trump era, where uh, the, the Republican Party especially has been uh, much more explicit in talking about racial issues, um, much more explicit about talking, appealing to white identity. And this is uh, a trend that I, I see reflected in the data here as well. I think what is new in my paper, or especially new, is the the findings on economics. And I, I think this is less appreciated, uh, both in the popular debate and I think in the political science literature as well, that we see people with college degrees are increasingly expressing pro-redistributive views and pro-spending views in a way that they weren't, uh, say, three decades ago. So you focus uh, most of your analyses on uh, white uh, voters, uh, not including uh, black, Hispanic and Asian American and other uh, minority uh, voters. But you do uh, show the trends uh, among uh, non-white voters. Uh, and uh, it, it sure looks like there there is a sign of a flip in the role of education among non-white voters. Uh, and although the current gap is not very large um, between educated and uh, less educated non-white voters, it certainly looks like we could end up in a situation like we were in 2008, where it, we've, we've sidelined it as this is about white voters uh, right at the wrong time in the process when it might be uh, continuing for, for minority voters. So, so how much can we really say that this is a phenomenon among white voters uh, versus non-white voters. Yeah, I think you're right that it's certainly possible that we're seeing the beginnings or maybe middle of a similar realignment along educational lines among non-white voters. Um, 
I think the analysis that I show here focuses on uh, on white voters first because a lot of the popular debates have been about the white working class and things like that. Um, but I think more fundamentally, there's still a lot less variation to explain among non-white voters. And I think the sort of framework that I developed might not be as applicable to non-white voters. You, you might think that the role of racial issues, for instance, uh, is much different among non-white voters than it is for, for white voters. And the, the sorts of survey questions that get asked often tap into, uh, or often tap into attitudes, uh, antagonistic attitudes toward racial and ethnic minorities. And these questions just don't seem to play the same role uh, among racial and ethnic minorities as they do for, for white voters. Um, but when it comes to more traditional moral issues, um, especially as the GOP in recent years has turned to turn back, I would say, to moral issues with the overturn of Roe v. Wade, uh, these, these book bans, don't say gay laws, etc. I certainly think it's plausible that we could see some working class minority voters increasingly vote on these conservative cultural attitudes as well. So I don't want to make any big bets about what will happen in the future, but I think it's plausible that we might see a similar pattern if these trends of issue emphasis continue uh, into, into the foreseeable future. So the way you set up your analysis, uh, it um, means that we're comparing people in the same uh, party environment in each election. Um, but uh, certainly there's a, there are signs that the parties are uh, changing the relative salience uh, and the positions that they take uh, on these issues over time. Um, you know, how much do you think that that is part of the story is the parties have changed their positions uh, or their emphases? That is, would this have happened uh, if everybody had talked about economic policy as much of the agenda as they had in the past? And would it be happening uh, if the parties had had stayed in their uh, older positions um, or, you know, kind of is there a liberal move uh, across the board on some of these issues? Yeah, this is a great question. I think it's a good time to point out some of the methodological challenges with answering this question. So part of what I do in the paper is to try to develop this issue voting framework and really think through what we can infer about different components of vote choice. Um, and so I adopt this spatial voting, multidimensional spatial voting framework. And this framework decomposes vote choice into three components. Uh, there's voters' own attitudes. There's the parties or the candidates' positions across different issues. And then finally, there's the weight that different voters place on each issue. And it turns out that it's really methodologically difficult to disentangle changing party positions over time from changing issue weights. So if you do a simple regression of vote choice on issue attitudes, in this framework, I show that this the coefficient you get from that regression is a combination of both issue weights and the candidate's platform divergence. And this is kind of intuitive. You wouldn't think that there should be a correlation between vote choice and attitudes if there's no weight placed on that issue. And also you wouldn't think that sh there should be a correlation if there's no difference between the candidates on that issue. So the upshot is that measuring, uh, measuring these three components across time is really difficult. So the partial solution that I come to in the paper is to say that, well, if we look within an election, different groups face the same choice of candidates so that we can hold fixed the party position 
and then look at the relative. So we can interpret differences in these correlations or these coefficients as differences in issue weights. Um, so here, this, this is kind of the basis uh, by which I, I talk about relative issue weights. So that's a long-winded way of getting to my answer to your question, which is that it's hard to know for sure what's going on with candidates' platforms uh, because we don't really have good data that measures platforms on the same scale that we can measure voters' attitudes here, except in limited circumstances on limited issues and in a few elections. Um, that said, when party, it does seem sort of, this, is, this isn't from the paper, but I think uh, other research has pointed to the fact that parties really are taking out distinct positions, especially in this longer time span going back to the 80s and 90s on, on these cultural uh, issues. And when, we, when they stake out these different positions, I think it's likely that candidates are going to highlight those positions in the campaign, and that could potentially influence the weight that voters attach to different issues. So it's not something that I have uh, that much data to say this is the reason that there's this increased issue emphasis, but it seems plausible that as parties are staking out distinct positions, they're campaigning on these issues, and it leads voters to uh, increase the weight that they place on those issues as well. So the other interview is with uh, Josh Singer, who uh, looks at uh, some of the same uh, individual level trends, but also looks at them geographically um, and tries to, to find some interactions there um, and basically shows that uh, it's college educated people in college educated areas that are moving uh, the furthest uh, leftward and, and vice versa. Um, and it, it is interesting here that in some sense, the press kind of discovered this first more as a geographic pattern than an individual level pattern. It sort of raises the question of whether uh, this is about a culture that people are surrounded by uh, in educated areas uh, or the kind of social networks that they are in um, versus kind of an individual level effect. H how do you see uh, those, those findings kind of uh, coalescing? Yeah, this was a really interesting paper, um, and I think it's indicative of the geographic sorting that we see along educational lines. Um, we see that college graduates have become increasingly clustered in sort of economically prosperous metropolitan areas, thinking like Boston or San Francisco, places like that. And so what Zinger's analysis, my interpretation of Zinger's analysis is that this conditional effect whereby the effect of holding a college degree is greater in places with a high concentration of college graduates is that it tells us something about people who are sort of in the off diagonals, people who are don't have college degrees, but end up in places dominated by people with college degrees and vice versa, people who don't hold, hold a college degree, but end up in a place where or sorry, people who do hold a college degree, but end up in a place where there aren't that many people like them. So my hypothesis here um, is that college graduates are clustered in metro areas, and these people tend to be especially liberal on cultural issues. I think there's, there's some evidence that people who self-select into cities and other metro areas are have a more cosmopolitan orientation on these cultural issues. That would help explain why you see an especially large effect uh, for college graduates is where there is a high proportion of college graduates. And then 
these people are also probably more liberal on economic issues as well. And this is a, a conjecture of mine, but I think um, some of my other work and, and other research suggests that this there's something to this. Um, the idea is that people who are moving to these uh, big metro areas often are moving away from family, friends, traditional uh, traditional cultural or traditional social institutions. And so they may depend a little bit more on government spending or at least be more amenable to it uh, because they don't have the sort of so informal safety net to fall back on. And as I mentioned before, people who live in these uh, metro regions also tend to be exposed to the externalities of inequality a little bit more acutely. So if you live in a very densely populated area, um, it's very common to see people who are from a different social class from you and maybe feel negatively about the social situation that they find themselves in, which could lead them to be more willing to spend money, spend government money in particular, to, to fix that. And then a final explanation for this could be uh, neighborhood effects, as you alluded to. So it could be that there are these uh, sort of liberal bubbles, for lack of a better term, and it becomes self-reinforcing where people move there and then they adopt some of the values of the places that, they, that they've moved to. And there's some, some nice work by Greg Martin and Josh McCrane suggesting that there is some causal effect on uh, people's attitudes when they actually move to a place. So, so I think all of these explanations could help explain this really uh, interesting pattern that, that Zinger documents. So when you think about education uh, as having an effect on people's political attitudes or, or vote choices, are you thinking about, you know, something that occurs at college that changes their, their views or, uh, you know, because on the other hand, you know, lots of people flipped in 2016 who were 50 years out of college. Um, uh, so it could just be about changes in, in salience, but it could be um, that college puts you in different social networks, different communities, different professions. You have different surroundings and that kind of changes your, your culture. How, how are you thinking about the effect of education? Yeah, so in this paper, I use education as a pretty crude proxy for class, I think. There's, there's been a lot of popular and, and academic discussion about the white working class. And I think a, a, an imperfect proxy certainly imperfect, but it's one that we have available to us over a really long time span. So I think there's uh, partly, certainly there's partly a causal effect of college. You, you mentioned some of the research on this earlier, but I think a lot of this is also about sort of the social environment that people who have college degrees find themselves in. So I think I would say it's a, a bit of column A, a bit of column B. Um, Higher education certainly exposes people to people from different geographic, cultural, economic backgrounds that might lead them to adopt different views on, on cultural issues, exposes people to new ideas, which might lead them to question or reject more traditional values. But also importantly, there are different labor market outcomes between college and non-college educated voters, uh, workers. And college grads, as I mentioned earlier, are more mobile, and this is likely to be important for attitudes. So, I would say that it, it's a bit of uh, it's a bit of the causal effect of college that certainly uh, plays into it. But the way I'm really thinking about it in this paper is thinking about education as a proxy 
or broader social class? So after the, the 2016 election, there was a very large uh, increase in popular interest in issues uh, related uh, to this uh, and related to the role of racial attitudes in, in voting, which I know you've worked on separately from this as well. Um, how would you kind of put the current state of, of knowledge uh, there? Um, is it, are we too, too much, are we still too much reacting to the, the Trump era and the specifics of it? Or have we learned um, more about these kind of long running trends that maybe we just hadn't been paying as much attention to? And would you kind of rate popular commentary and uh, political science as as converging here or still in, in pretty different worlds? I think one benefit of the 2016 and 2020 elections was to increase interest in these longer run running trends. And I think the initial wave of research really looked a lot at these specific elections, trying to understand what was different about Trump. But more recent research, my paper included, has looked at taking a broader, uh, more holistic look at these trends over time. And I think that public debates about these trends uh, are, are somewhat right, somewhat, you know, all, always a little bit reductive. But I think there are a couple things it gets right. Um, so we've, as we've discussed before, there's this idea that cultural and racial issues are becoming increasingly important. And I think that's true. And it wasn't obvious going back to 2008 or before that that was, uh, that was actually happening. But I think with some benefit of a, a little bit more data, we see that that actually is true. And, and so a lot of the debates uh, among pundits and strategists about whether uh, the Democratic Party should emphasize or de-emphasize cultural issues are reflecting some some real trends in the data. Um, that said, I think a lot of this debate hinges on how much weight voters place on different issues, but this is a, a really slippery term. And I'm hoping that by providing this framework in my paper, we can help think through a little bit more carefully about what uh, what we should infer from these correlations between issue attitudes and, and vote choice. And then finally, uh, especially in 2020, we saw that there's, there was a uh, Biden really won due to suburban counties with highly, a highly educated electorate. Think about the, the county surrounding Atlanta as an example, the Atlanta suburbs. And these counties have swung left. And I think my analysis suggests that it's not just cultural issues that explain this. It's both economic and cultural issues. And these highly educated people tended to vote for a long time on cultural issues, issues of race and moral values. Um, but now they are increasingly economically liberal as well. So I think that helps explain to some extent why we're seeing this shift at the macro level uh, toward Democrats in, in counties that are, are doing pretty well economically, often in suburban uh, centers of economic activity. So you, as we've said, kind of methodologically took the party positioning out of uh, your analysis uh, here, but it still seems to have implications for those debates you were 
uh, referencing about, you know, what the party should do. Um, and uh, if I, I will put it somewhat crudely, it doesn't seem to offer uh, much, much hope for changing anything if what we're doing is increasingly lining up with one side or the other across the board and making a voting determination <laughs> based on that. That doesn't seem like anything that's likely to change, uh, even if, say, Trump isn't in the election uh, or even if one of the parties decided to moderate on a particular issue attitude. Uh, is that your sense as well? I think yes and no. I think that these coalitions are likely to be relatively stable, at least at the macro level going forward, because we, we are seeing this increasing correlation across a whole range of issues where college-educated voters and non-college voters are just staking out distinct, issue, uh, distinct positions across uh, different issue areas. That said, we're in an era of intense party competition for the presidency especially, and really small changes in candidate positioning or the weights that voters place on different issues could end up mattering a lot for these outcomes. So it, it could be that even kind of paradoxically, even though we are in this situation where there are really deep divisions in the, in the electorate, there are still moderates out there, right? There are still people who are not set on one party versus another. And in that environment, really small changes to positioning could have large implications for, uh, for election outcomes. And then finally, I would say that it, I, I would push back against any notion, not that you said this explicitly, but push back against the notion that what elites say doesn't actually matter because public opinion and elite activities are always going to be in a feedback loop, right? Where voters are learning and updating their, their views from politicians and politicians are updating their stances in response to the electorates that they face. So it's a complicated uh, back and forth. So I would really not want to say that these divisions imply that there's nothing candidates can do to either shape public opinion or influence the outcome of the elections that they're running in. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center, and I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, all linked on our website. Higher Education, an Engine of Social Mobility or a Driver of Inequality. The Politics of School from Home. Why the Baby Boomers Rule American Politics. How Marriage and Inequality Reinforce Partisan Polarization. And Is Demographic and Geographic Polarization Overstated? Thanks to Joshua Zinger and Will Marble for joining me. Please check out Diploma Divide and What Explains Educational Polarization Among White Voters, and then listen in next time. Mm-hmm.